Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hi! These are the last episodes of Queer Serial, leading up to the final episodes on Stonewall's 52nd anniversary. Happy Pride! And then there will be a big finale episode shortly after. And finally, before we start, this podcast uses text from real homophile-era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. So, the podcast has identifying terms that may now be out of date. Previously, you became a street walker. You stand down in the street and you make money. If you walk down 42nd Street and even look 
like a faggot, you were going to jail. Well, I'm surprised you threw that in, the transvestites. You mean yeah. we should uh, think about their right to dress as they please? The homophile movement is only part of a, a much larger movement of the erasure of labels. B is concerned about women's civil rights as male homosexual civil liberties. Homosexual men should value women as people. Don't treat them like showpieces, actually give them responsibility. There's little evidence, however, that the male homosexual has any intention of making common cause with us. Nationwide ring preying on prominent deviants. Prominent theatrical personalities and officers of the armed services, all homosexual, have been the victims of an extortion ring that has operated throughout the nation for nearly 10 years. There's a mafia boss running a shakedown ring targeting some of the highest profile closeted homosexuals in the nation. The NYPD called the case the chickens and the bulls. MSNY has also been informed that Murphy has an interest in the Stone Wall, a club on Christopher Street, and several other gay clubs in New York. Our sources claim that the membership lists of some of these clubs are used to further extortion and shakedown schemes. New York Hymnal received a report from a reliable source over a month ago that the Stone Wall was going to be closed by the health department because it was alleged that a number of cases of hepatitis had been traced to the Stone Wall's bar. It was reported that the Stone Wall does not wash the glasses. Now tell me how you pay off the police. I don't. They don't come in. You surely give someone a free drink or a case of beer, don't you? I'm Devlin Camp, and this is the serialized story of queer liberation in America, from the beginning to Stonewall. August 23rd, 1968. In D.C., Frank Kameny writes to Randy Wicker at his New York City button shop. Just a short note relating to buttons and the like. I've just returned from Chicago, where we had our annual National Conference of the Homophile Movement. Among the actions taken was the adoption by the conference as a slogan or motto for the movement of Gay is Good, in obvious parallel to the Negroes, Black is Beautiful. We want to get this published as widely as possible and are hoping to have it made into buttons, stickers, etc., etc. Anything that you care to do would be appreciated. At least one of your competitors on the West Coast is going to be making up gay as good buttons and stickers. Things proceed busily here. Unfortunately for the present, I am once more out of work with my creditors howling. That's all for now. Keep in touch. Let me know about our slogan, Gay is Good! Cordially, Frank. The gay is good slogan is not nearly as good as black is beautiful, simply because it soft sells rather than puts the idea over with a punch. We even have an it's great to be straight button. Why didn't they at least decide gay is great? In any event, it's so wishy-washy, I'm afraid I'll let my competitor on the West Coast distribute it. If you want to have it printed, I will give the buttons at absolute cost, which is half the listed price. A thousand would cost you around $25. But I just can't see putting $25 of my money into a slogan that is so absolutely colorless. Perhaps not Randy Wicker's best business decision. Frank goes ahead and orders his gay as good buttons. His relentlessness has only grown stronger as the movement gains power. 
Kameny is unanimously re-elected chairman of the Eastern Regional Conference of Homophile Organizations. And for his first move, he immediately mails off a press release announcing Erko's opposition of New York Congressman John Rooney in the current election. Frank mails his press release directly to Rooney. Congressman Rooney had voted in favor of the anti-gay purges in Washington. After Rooney also sweeps his election, he writes to Erko Chairman Kameny, saying, I do want you to know that I appreciate your sending me a copy of the report of your October 26th meeting. Enclosed is a deplorable full-page ad which appeared in this morning's New York Times, which I am sure all of you will find interesting. Frank unfolds an ad for the off-Broadway play, Boys in the Band. Frank powers ahead. He refuses to get a job outside of astronomy, the job he trained for. So, as his bills pile up, he fills his time with homophile speaking engagements. And, of course, always taking calls from local gays looking for help. The local Mattachine has been so inactive that the phone was moved out of their office and into Frank's house. He has two phones now. He also has meetings with Barbara Giddings and their gay legal clients. Recently, Dick Leish of the MSNY wrote to Barbara, suggesting she come work with them in New York, instead of... Playing solicitor to his barrister in Frank's legal charades. Barbara folds Dick's letter back up, puts it in a new envelope, and addresses it to Frank. She has no interest in ruining her relationship with Frank. They are closer than ever to accomplishing one of Mattachine's first goals, winning back federal jobs. They're bringing gay cases to the NCACLU, and they don't care if they're pissing off other homophiles. In fact, when Giddings and Kameny announce they're working on a new case this year, the legal chair of the National Homophile Alliance, NACO, furiously writes that Frank should have told them in advance. Frank writes back, I shall continue to use my methods. I am not interested in resting upon my laurels, but if I were, I have them in considerable quantity to rest upon very comfortably. Nothing succeeds like success, and thus far I have the successes, and you do not. They don't call him the homophile Caesar for nothing. He returns another letter. Frank opens another from Shirley Willer, former DOB president, now resigned from the movement. She sent a $100 donation to the MSW and a note. Happy 1969. Frank sends his thanks. He writes to the new ladder editor, Barbara Greer, a.k.a. Jean Damon. He's just read her review of The Gay World by Martin Hoffman in her book column, Lesbiana. In a passing comment, Gene Damon criticizes the author for being outdated. Frank has a problem with how she stated it. Damon wrote, Superficially, this is an obvious truism, but looked at in the form of a case history or two, you come up wondering why only black people march on Washington. Dear Miss Damon, I noted with some interest and wry but not malicious amusement your comment that you come up wondering why only black people march on Washington. As you may remember, precisely such marches in Washington and Philadelphia by homosexuals 
were the subject of lengthy and mildly heated discussion and correspondence between us in 1966. At that time, you were quite unequivocal in your disapproval and condemnation of such activities and of those who participated in them. Am I to assume from the remark quoted that you have reversed your position and that we may welcome you into the ranks of militant homophile activists? I sincerely hope so. Cordially, Franklin E. Kameny. What is it with this dear Miss Damon? People I have snarled at in my own front room are usually less formal. I still feel as I did about the well-dressed demonstrations. I still feel that the people who run the world are not impressed with any kind of demonstration, except negatively. I still believe that each issue of the latter and comparable does more to aid our cause than any and all of the marches. Actually, just a statement as mine in that review is meant to be a militant statement. I live the propaganda life constantly, and I am directing the magazine that way. I simply believe that education is the only way to get anything. I also believe the pens work better than swords. Don't worry, everyone agrees more with you than me. There are far more people eager to march than to simply sit down and work. I'm not including you. I know how hard you work. We have no direct contact, but I hear of you constantly. Which methods work? Putting our thoughts on paper or picket signs? Gay is good or gay is great? And black ink on those buttons or lavender ink? Every move feels crucial. As Frank and editor Jean Damon battle it out through letters, other latter writers also face backlash from their readers. Gay conservatives who believe even all this writing is too militant. Helen Sandoz gets a letter in early 1969 criticizing her encouragement of the homophiles who are... Taking up other banners, other causes. Lesbians have less civil rights than any other group. Helen responds... I don't think we can win our objectives at the exclusion of other minorities' battles. If I could not work in the field of civil rights for all people, I could not, in an honorable fashion, work for the civil rights of the homosexual. I cannot say to my black sister that her problem is being homosexual. I have to say to her that I care about all of her problems. I cannot imagine anything more horrible than to be a free lesbian in society and find that my color still held me back from full and honorable participation in that society. Get her, Helen. The Homophile Action League, which formed in Philadelphia to replace the slow-moving Daughters of Belitis, they also write in their newsletter about education and lethargic homophiles. We do not intend to concentrate our energies on uplifting the homosexual community, for such efforts would be sadly misplaced. It is our firm conviction that it is the heterosexual community which is badly in need of uplifting. We are living in the age of revolution, and one of the bywords of revolution in this country is confrontation. During the time when the black, the poor, and the student have been actively confronting the systems which deny and demean them, we have been, sometimes, writing letters to our congressmen. While others have been openly challenging discriminating statues, we have been, sometimes, satisfied with not being persecuted. While other groups seize the initiative and therefore fight their battles on their own terms, we wait, sometimes, in dread, always in the defensive posture, never prepared. People come and go so quickly in this story, but the one thing every season of this podcast has in common is that the activists are constantly re-examining, always trying to answer those two elusive questions. What are we actually fighting for? 
and how do we actually win it? Still fighting it out through letters with the new ladder editor, Kameny retreats, knowing that bickering via mail won't get them very far. He'd rather collaborate, to an extent. Dear Barbara, now using Jean Damon's legal name, not her pseudonym, there is little point in getting into a long discussion via letter on demonstrations. I think that current events prove the effectiveness of demonstrations after other methods have failed. Our demonstrations have been effective and went a long way. Yes, I would be delighted to write an article for the latter. Do you have any specific ideas for a subject? Once we've worked that out, I'll be glad to get to work on it. There should be no problem with its being applicable to female as well as to male homosexuals, since I, like Barbara, do not recognize any difference at all in the base interests and concerns of the two groups. I am deeply distressed at the increasing tendency to inject feminism and women's rights into DOB and the latter. These are commendable causes in their own right, and I'm wholeheartedly a supporter of them, but I don't believe in mixing causes. Sincerely, Frank. Gene Damon responds to his first draft. It was a good article, but it isn't anything special for women. But DOB is for lesbians, not women. Lesbians are homosexuals first, and women only incidentally. Women's rights organizations are a dime a dozen. Lesbian organizations are unique. Don't degrade yourselves. And that carries with it no implications as to a lower valuation of women or women's rights. Come, come now. A little proper perspective and sense of proportion are in order. Obviously, if anti-homosexual discrimination died out overnight, lesbians would still have the woman issue to cope with. And if the woman issue dies out overnight, they would still have the homosexuality issue. And if the Negro issue dies out overnight, the black homosexual would still have the homosexual issue to cope with. And if the homosexual issue dies out overnight, he would still have the Negro issue to deal with. And if anti-Semitism died out overnight, the Jewish homosexual would still have the homosexual issue to cope with. And if the homosexual issue died out overnight, he would still have the Jewish issue to deal with. Ad infinitum. All that says is that many people, the lesbian among them, have more than one problem to cope with in their lives. These remain, in every case cited above, including the lesbian, totally and utterly separate problems, which only interact to the detriment of both if mixed. Point made. Nuff said. Cordially, Frank. Ugh, so close. Frank has perfectly explained intersectionality and then denies the power of it. Del Martin writes an essay for the latter, explaining that our various causes are already more separate than most of us seem to know. Lesbians tend to think of themselves as belonging to a minority group, which is commonly known as the homosexual community. In reality, and certainly for all practical purposes, this is a myth, a delusion, a bill of goods sold to us by male homosexual organizations, which pretend to be co-educational in character and membership. The news media has certainly emphasized what we had become increasingly aware of, but reluctant to admit openly. CBS reports, of course, did us a favor by excluding us. Life and look have been equally kind in their omissions. 
There are advantages we find in the slanted press and the bias of male reporters trying desperately to cling to the last vestiges of the superior male image, the masculine mystique, if you will, which is as hollow as the culturally learned and perpetuated feminine mystique so aptly described by Betty Friedan. The lesbian, after all, is first of all a woman, an individual who must earn her own livelihood, who must provide her own household. She is much more concerned with problems of inequality in job and educational opportunities than in the problems of male hustlers and prostitutes. There are new organizations which might more successfully capture the imagination of the thoughtful and responsible lesbian. The National Organization for Women has been formed to take action to bring women into full participation in the mainstream of American society now, exercising all the privileges and responsibilities thereof in truly equal partnership with men. Later, that same month, April 1969, young Bay Area writer and activist Leo Lawrence publishes an article for Vector. Gay Revolution. Vector is the popular publication made by SIR, the Society for Individual Rights in San Francisco. While the organization has been expanding quickly, some members have been critical of leadership. Homosexual organizations on the West Coast are doing very little to spark the homosexual revolution of 69. Timid leaders with enormous ego trips, middle-class bigotry and racism, and too many middle-aged, uptight conservatives are hurting almost every major homosexual organization on the West Coast and probably throughout the nation. Only about 1% of the homosexual leaders I've interviewed are willing to publicly say, I'm gay and I'm proud. About the only people with that kind of courage are the new breed of young gay kids. And that's just why organizations like SIR keep them out. The old timers are scared that these kids will come in and really create a gay revolution. Racism is as big in gay organizations as it is in our middle class straight world. Gay businesses in the Bay Area forming a group called the Tavern Guild refused to join Citizens Alert last month, a group trying to put an end to police harassment and brutality. I don't like Citizens Alert because that Reverend Cecil Williams is involved. He goes too far on civil rights, said one vocal uptight racist member. Cecil is a black militant minister. President Larry Littlejohn of Sur recently told me, 1969 is our year. It's a time to move, to be militant, to demand our rights. Unfortunately, most of his officers are not supporting such militancy. Individual homosexuals must open up and honestly accept their own homosexuality. Say you're gay at work, at home, church, wherever you go. Come out from behind a double life of straight at work and home, but gay at night. I'll admit it's not easy to be honest, but neither was writing this article. Leo Lawrence is promptly fired from Vector by Sir Leadership for his radical call to action, thus proving his point. Immediately after, the Berkeley Barb prints, Homo Revolt Blasting Off on Two Fronts. The homosexual revolution of 69 started this week in San Francisco as militant homosexuals made war on both gay and straight establishments. 
Leo Lawrence, deposed editor of Vector magazine, lashed out against the repressive actions of the Society for Individual Rights on Tuesday. He and another gay militant, Gail Whittington, organized the Committee for Homosexual Freedom. And on Wednesday, the group picketed Whittington's former employer, State Steamship Company, for discrimination against homosexuals. Tuesday night, the Sir Board of Directors took their monthly magazine, Vector, away from its revolutionary editor, Lawrence, who was elected overwhelmingly by Sir membership only two months ago. Bullshit, says Lawrence, who told Barb. Getting kicked out as Vector editor by the gay establishment is a victory for the homosexual revolution. Sir leadership is damned worried because militant revolutionary homosexuals like myself and other members of the new Committee for Homosexual Freedom are on the attack. State Steamship Company officials told a dozen press, radio, and TV newsmen that they were ignoring the homosexual pickets. Ignore us, hell. Our gay picket line will soon be a big noon hour feature of the financial district. Already several other radical groups are interested in helping us put a stop to discrimination against homosexuals. The revolution should stop every state's line ship in the world until they rehire Gail Whittington, Lawrence explained. It could be done with help from the unions and other militant groups. The black man found self-respect and dignity when he said, Black is beautiful and I am proud. Now homosexuals are starting to say, Gay is good and I too am proud. Three weeks later. Homo death group will act. The Alameda County coroner has flatly denied a request to hold an inquest into the police killing of Frank Bartley, a 33-year-old Berkeley homosexual. Bartley was shot in the head by Berkeley pig Wyker Klein, April 17, in a hassle over a sex offense arrest in Aquatic Park. The officer attempted to entrap Frank Bartley. Bartley died April 24th from the 38 slug wound, his family wanted to donate his body for organ transplants, but the coroner ruled that since the death was a homicide, no organs could be transplanted. Official investigations into the shooting by Berkeley police and the district attorney cleared Klein and his partner, Frank Reynolds, and indicated that no inquest was necessary. The request was made by Berkeley attorney Mary Montgomery, who is representing Bartley's family. Last week, attorney Montgomery told Barb that murder charges would be held against the two officers. Berkeley Police Inspector Jack Houston told Barb that, as far as the police department was concerned, the case of Frank Bartley is closed. It looks like an official cover-up. Larry Littlejohn, president of the Society for Individual Rights, told Barb. Sir was one of several groups that participated in a mock funeral motorcade from Glide Memorial Church in San Francisco to the Berkeley Hall of Justice in protest of the killing of Frank Bartley a week ago Friday. Little John and other SIR officials met with Berkeley Police Chief Baker Wednesday, requesting that the police make a public statement concerning the Bartley killing. We also wanted them to make the police investigation report on the incident public, said Little John. Baker told us that no public statement would be made and that police reports were only available to those newspapers the department chose to recognize. Leo Lawrence, press officer for the Committee for Homosexual Freedom, told Barb that the demonstration did not go far enough. We are not interested in these absurd official reports of an official murder. CHF is demanding that the two officers involved be suspended immediately and remain off the force until murder charges against them are tried in court. We want these killers off the streets, he said. 
CHF is also demanding that Chief Baker issue immediate orders to his men to cease harassment and entrapment of homosexuals or resign his post. Two weeks later, May 23, 1969, Leo Lawrence writes for the Berkeley Barb. Gays get tougher. Militant homosexuals struck a blow to San Francisco's famed Fisherman's Wharf District when the Committee for Homosexual Freedom hit Tower Records with a picket line and launched a boycott against the store last Saturday. Tower Records recently fired a clerk, Frank DeNaro, on suspicion that he was a homosexual. Their complaint was that he had winked at a customer. Tower Sign advertises a Joan Baez album. While Joan sings of love, freedom, and brotherhood, the management says, we don't tolerate that free spirit around here by our employees. Says Morgan Penny of the CHF. We intend to hit Tower Records hard with an economic boycott every weekend. Says Steve Matthews of CHF. There is a good chance that Tower will become the first to sign a fair employment pledge protecting homosexual employees if people join our boycott by refusing to cross our picket line. An amazing number of potential customers stopped at our line, says Jim Connolly of the CHF. Then drove away after we told them that Tower Records discriminates against gays. Friendly employees said our strike line was really hurting their business and creating a big hassle among the bosses. Picketing remains undiminished at the state's steamship company, where the CHF strike started seven weeks ago. Nearly 1,000 leaflets are passed out every weekday noon hour. The gay picketers are getting bolder, and are invading the offices of State's Lines and their neighbor, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith, stock brokerage. Teams of CHF leafleteers swarmed through the Merrill Lynch offices this week, ignoring the frightened objections shouted by the uptight money mongers. Wednesday, CHF pickets marched into the State's Lines offices and politely asked to discuss their grievances with company officials. State's lines flatly refused to negotiate and instead insulted the CHF members who then formed a circle and sang their freedom songs. June 20th, 1969. Gay power's invincible rise. Revolutionary forces in this country seem to be ignoring a vast source of power in this country, a power that can literally stop the industrial, military complex that is controlling the politics and ruling the people of this nation. The power I mean is the power of homosexuals, the largest minority in the United States. Homosexuals have the potential numbers to prove that all power is with the people. We exist in all segments of society and on all socioeconomic levels. We are in the hip community, the underground, and in the establishment. For example, if only 10% of homosexuals employed in Bay Area businesses were attracted into the revolution, the movement could literally stop all big business at will. The military machine that's running the Vietnam War wouldn't run if only 10% of the homosexuals in the military simply admitted being gay and demanded discharges. Homosexuals hold a tremendous source of potential political power, heretofore either ignored or feared by the leaders of today's revolution. The revolution today is for world liberation. It is a struggle to liberate the oppressed peoples who are victims of our bigoted establishment, the blacks, hippies, students, and the kids who enjoy playing in the people's park. 
This is the revolution that we all know so well. The revolution of the streets, the revolution of politics, the war, the draft, big business, unions, and the campus. That is the revolution of the Black Panthers, resistance, the SDS, the YSA, the BSU, the hippies, and yippies. These people are fighting for freedom, and I feel many of their leaders are today's super patriots. They are the Patrick Henrys of the Second American Revolution. But why is all that manly courage missing on the homosexual freedom front? When big business kicked out a brother because he had the guts to say he was gay, where were all the so-called brave revolutionaries? Were they able to face the troops in Berkeley, but unable to help homosexuals fight for freedom? In over two years of writing and fighting for the revolution, I have unfortunately discovered in the underground bigotry is not exclusive with the establishment. It has permeated the revolution as well and is aimed at the homosexual. They try to say the gay thing isn't part of the real revolution, just as they once said of the hippie movement, now an integral part of our revolutionary forces. The word revolution today is also for the liberation of ourselves, freedom from uptightness, and freedom to love, including homosexual love. We must eliminate all vestiges of prejudice and discrimination. It must be eliminated from our revolutionary forces as well as from the establishment. It is otherwise not justice for all. It is not freedom for all. It is not love for all. Is there room for everyone in this movement for liberation? Summer of 1969, The Advocate, still new and run by young writers, announces their new publication, Queen's Quarterly, which is covered in yellow and purple pansies. They talk about fashion and S&M and interview transvestites? Dawn is just breaking. Queen's Quarterly wants to present a total picture of gay life, but we're happy being ourselves. We cannot be something we are not. We must be ourselves. Our message is simple. Stop apologizing for yourself. Face the facts and accept yourself as you are. There is a real place for us in this world. Be proud and excited about being gay. We have earned our place in society, and it must now learn its lesson that we are here to stay and that our voice is loud and strong. This is the age of the gay renaissance. Hey, Mattachinos. Yes, these are the final six episodes of Queer Serial, but don't worry. My Patreon will continue on after the show. I've got a slate of interviews lined up, many already recorded, and coming to you after the season is over. In the meantime, pop onto my Patreon for deeper dives into the research behind every episode. Recently, we looked at the Mattachine's phone call logs, which a lot of you loved. We looked at the Sir Pocket Lawyer book, mentioned in the show a few times. We've gone through Canadian homophile magazines, 1960s dirty gay coloring books, and the various erotic lesbian Belitis illustrations. Coming up, we'll look through Daughters of Belitis convention pamphlets and handwritten letters, letters and photos from the raid on California Hall, and some gay cruising guides. 
Check all that out, plus the bonus episodes and more, at patreon.com slash queer serial. Just click the link in the episode notes. This is Mayor Lindsay. New Yorkers send $3 billion every year into the war and another $6 billion into the war machine. That's more than our entire city budget. And you and I have to tell them to stop. Because we're not only sending them our money, we're sending them our sons. Make your choice on merit only. Support John Lindsay for mayor. The movement on the East Coast confronts their police, too. It's a dangerous time to be queer in New York City during campaign season. There are 26 bars, 12 nightclubs and restaurants, four hotels, and two private clubs where homosexuals gather regularly in this city. Five of those 26 are lesbian bars. All of these places are vulnerable to a raid. Most of these spots are close to the water, the Hudson River. It's fairly discreet in these bars, but cops still find ways to make arrests inside these spaces. Instead of risking it inside with a possible cop in plain clothes, queers often cruise Greenwich Avenue. And if they don't meet someone by the time they hit a spot nicknamed The Corner on Greenwich and Christopher, they can turn and take Christopher down to the piers. Down here, they'll meet some street queens. I was born July 2nd, 1951, at 2.30 in the morning in a taxi cab in the old Lincoln Hospital parking lot. The old queen couldn't wait. <laughs> she said, I'm ready to hit the streets. My grandmother used to always joke about that. I said, yeah, I said, you see why I'm always standing out on the street corner? <laughs> That's good. And then I was came out feet first. That's the real Sylvia Rivera, audio courtesy of Making Gay History. Find the Making Gay History podcast on all major podcast platforms and at makinggayhistory.com. Around the village, you might also meet Zazu Nova, queen of sex. Nova has a royal demeanor and a fierce temper, and is rumored to have served time for murder before hustling for survival sex work on the docks. Nova is a black queen who's known to be aloof, and she's known for her striking African silhouette. Once, Martin Boyce ran into Nova on 42nd Street at 3 in the morning, and they were chatting, catching up, and joking around. She let him touch her fake breast to see what it was made of, and they suddenly realized that five men had surrounded them. Look at that. He's touching that tit and doesn't get nothing out of it. Nova senses they're about to be jumped. She pulls out a long, thick chain from her purse and swings it in the air over her head. The guys run. Jackie Hormona also frequents the piers. He dyes his hair blonde, wears facial powder and eyeliner. No one is really sure where Jackie comes from. He's kind, but also distant. Villagers sometimes see him drunk on a stoop, but he's often the level-headed one. When queens are fighting, Jackie is known to be the first to jump up and say, it's not worth fighting about, she's your friend, why are you acting like this? Another queen villagers are bound to see on the Christopher Piers is Marsha P. Johnson. She used to call herself Black Marsha 
but she picked up the last name Johnson, according to one rumor, after the Howard Johnsons. The middle initial P stands for pay it no mind. Marsha P. Johnson wears all kinds of unconventional drag, collecting items off the street and creating a look. Fake flowers in her hair, costume jewelry, Christmas lights. I'll put the Christmas lights one on my Instagram, it's great. Stories of Marsha's generous spirit among the villagers are endless and legendary. She steals bread for people who have no home or food and defends her sisters from men on the street. Her hot temper for justice has her banned from several bars. She walks the waterfront, also working, getting arrested more than a hundred times and experiencing around eight nervous breakdowns. Marsha is a well-known village personality and often a friendly guide in the neighborhood. If new gays visit the village, Marsha will show them around. Just ask Joey Kane, who voiced Elver Barker last season. Marsha shows them the commercial trucks backed up to the waterfront, where produce and meat are unloaded on the docks. The empty trucks are parked there and left unlocked all night. If you peek in, you might see a lit cigarette burning in the darkness. Someone is waiting. Men slip into the empty trucks for discreet late-night orgies. As gay couples are often refused hotel rooms, and the bars and parks are unsafe, and they might have a family at home, so the trucks will do. Sometimes it seems like hundreds of men are inside these trucks. Sometimes this group space is the safest place to be. Until the police swarm the waterfront, banging their nightsticks on the trucks. Men fly out as police chase and beat them. Jackie Hormona and Jerry Hoos scream at the cops and throw bricks at them. Some people have gone missing after these truck raids. The Mattachine Society of New York suspects murder. Docks, darkness, and danger. The area has become a mecca for uptight hoodlums looking for a queer to beat up. One of their favorite games is to shove a homosexual into the cesspool known as the Hudson River. At least four people have drowned in the filth after hitting their heads on pier footings. One man was beaten so badly, he lost an eye. MSNY recommends the safer alternative, the bathhouses. And then, of course, the next month, Mattachine prints this headline. Bathhouse raided. The Continental Baths, where Bette Midler will soon launch her career, is raided likely because they didn't pay off the police. 22 men are arrested as cops wreck the place. According to witnesses, uniformed city police entered the place and made the customers get dressed and file out. While they were leaving, a man, naked except for a towel, pointed out the ones he alleged had either had sex or offered sex to him. Some of the people claimed that the towel-clad man, a cop, had had sex with them. Inasmuch as the police still have not found even a lead on who killed the homosexual in the gay section of Central Park last fall, and cannot deal with the muggings, pickpockets, and others who prey upon homosexuals in the parks, the docks, etc., we pointed out, wouldn't it be easier for them to wink at the bathhouses? After all, such places provide an indoor, protected location where assignations may be made, and don't involve the crimes against person and property that semi-public places do. The police say that someone saw an ad, thought the CB was just a bathhouse, and visited the place. When the innocent customer found himself in the midst of gay sex and lots of it, he called the cops and they had no choice but to raid. 
This is the first test, as this is the first time since May of 1966 that there has been a case involving anything like the use of plainclothes, or in this case naked, cops to make homosexual arrests. We don't know what they plan to do, but if you continue to see CB ads around town, our advice is to avoid the place. It could be raided again at any time. Gay men can't even get away to Fire Island to safely spend their time in an almost exclusively gay group. Cops raided the Pines there, too. MSNY also reports on two transit police, who aren't like regular police. They can still legally entrap gays in certain bathrooms. These transit police officers arrest three men and take their money. When one man argues, a transit officer asks if he'd like to be carried out of this bathroom with a shiv in his body. Also, MSNY reports in this newsletter that one of their members stopped at around 1.15 outside the Stonewall to talk to some friends, and two cops told them to move along. When the Mattachino protested because they weren't disrupting anyone, he was arrested. Where is it safe to go? Grim Reapings, Coast to Coast. Mattachine Society of New York Newsletter, June 1969. On April 3rd, the NYC police found a male body floating in the Hudson River near the Christopher Street docks. According to the medical examiner's report, the body had been in the water about 10 days, that is, since about March 23rd. The deceased was probably between 20 and 25, about 5 foot 11 inches tall, and weighed about 185 pounds. He had good teeth and brown hair. The corpse was clothed in golden brown corduroy trousers, very tight fitting, a tan and brown dress shirt, and one black shoe and one brown sock. The man was apparently strangled to death before the body ended up in the river. The police suspect he was probably another victim of the dock scene, just about the most dangerous gay scene in New York. Meanwhile, in Los Angeles, a gay man was savagely beaten to death by the L.A. cops in a gay hotel. According to our report... All gay and trans people need is one place where they can simply exist. Somewhere they can hang out without being hurt or killed or mugged or arrested. Even straight places aren't always safe. As the sip-in publicized, inside any bar, even a straight bar, appearing queer can get you kicked out. Even many gay bars don't let trans women in. So the only place for many queers to gather is in a business that they know will protect them from the police and from brutal attackers. A bar with protection from the police can only be run by one group, the Mafia. Cops can raid most any bar and shut it down for disorderly conduct, code for homosexuals are existing in here, but the Mafia has plenty of money and they use it to pay off police to leave their bars alone. The Mafia makes this excess of cash by watering down the drinks and running cheap, unsanitary establishments that no customers can complain about to the city because the city doesn't care about a queer bar's safety. The Mafia is also known to manage an ice cream parlor called the Tenth of Always. It's a known spot for gay teens to meet. Mafia management sells high-priced burgers and sodas. as a little dance floor where teenagers can get together. As the police swing by, the manager flickers the chandelier lights, signaling everyone to sit down. Because, of course, it's illegal for gays to dance together. 
When the cops are gone, the teens get back up to dance. Over in the corner, a heavyset man in a gray suit and a gray beard watches them. He's always in the corner, at the ice cream shop, at a bar called Danny's. He watches the young boys cruising. His name is Ed Murphy, and he's known as the Skull. At the ice cream shop, John stopped by to see Ed Murphy and choose their pickings from the dance floor. Some of these underage boys work for the Skull. They're called chickens. His national extortion ring, exposed in the New York Times for blackmailing prominent homosexuals by setting them up with chickens, this scheme did not take the Skull down. He got away with it. Now his empire is rebuilding on a new but classic scheme for exploiting gay people. Cheaply run bars that pay off the cops. Ed Murphy has been in trouble with the police since he was a kid when he whacked a cop over the head with a milk bottle. Fabulous. He served in World War II, then he worked as a doorman at gay clubs, he served a decade in state prison for some scams, and had several violent outbursts inside. Murphy later shaved his head and became a professional wrestler called The Skull. He threw chairs at people who booed him. After that job, he went back to bouncing gay bars and working as a house detective at the New York Hilton, where he blackmailed wealthy gay men. The Skull is gay himself, so he knows how to find him. His newest investment is a bar with an upstairs where he's rumored to run a new ring of extortion schemes targeting other gay men. It's perfect. Two businesses in one building. The crowds of queers desperate for a bar protected from police should disguise the Skull's other dealings inside. Visitors of the village won't see any ads for his bar in the paper. You just have to hear about it. A teenager, Danny Garvin, leaves St. Albans Naval Hospital after his discharge from the Navy and of suicide attempt. He goes immediately to his favorite bar, Julius, to celebrate. An older guy approaches him. What are you doing in here? Well, I'm having drinks. You should be around the corner with all the chicken. Huh? The new bar that opened up around the corner tonight, the Stonewall, they're all over there. Danny takes a quick walk over around the corner. Standing at the big oak doors, Danny is looked up and down by a set of eyes behind two vertical slats in the door. The bouncer, blonde Frankie, takes his time. The doors are reinforced with steel on the inside, with several locks for when the police come knocking for a raid. But the bouncer has a plan for that. He can't always prevent a raid, but he can slow it down, taking his time unlatching each lock. Meanwhile, blonde Frankie would throw a switch by the door and bring all the white lights up on the dance floor to warn customers that a raid is imminent. The bartenders would jump over the bar and mix in with the crowd and mingle. The drugs would be hidden or flushed, and cash stuffed into the staff's pockets. Blonde Frankie would easily sense a raid coming. He's worked the door at many gay bars and has a near-photographic memory for faces. He knows the cops. If you look like you don't belong... He might ask you to describe the inside of the stone wall to see if you've been here before. So you describe the painted black walls and the jukebox and where the bathrooms are. Blonde Frankie looks the young guy up and down. 
and decides to let him in. Once you're inside, the bouncer takes the $1 charge, $3 on weekends, and everyone gets two drink tickets. In order for a club to have this type of private bouncer set up to keep the police out, the Stonewall is considered a bottle club. A bottle club is where customers can bring their own bottles, which will be held for them at the club with their name on it. Waiters serve them from their own bottles and take tips. The mafia staff of the Stonewall just makes up names to stick on the bottles and uses them to serve whoever Blonde Frankie lets into the club. And, in order to get into an ordinary bottle club, you sign in. Keeping up with the appearance of a bottle club, there's a big book to sign at the Stonewall's entrance. Yet another deterrent for straight people. Many gays write fake names anyway, like Judy Garland or Liz Taylor. But it's not just a joke. If cops seize the book, you don't want your name in there. Passing through the entrance, there's a coat check closet on the left, with a boarded-up window inside, facing Christopher Street. At the end of the tiny lobby, there's a door open, and one step down through it, as you turn right to see the main bar of the Stonewall Inn. It's packed. Everyone is dancing. And not just gay men. Queens, trans girls, trans boys, lesbians, everyone. Danny feels an electric shock. Something totally new. Like most people, he thinks, this place will never last. It'll have to be raided. The first room is the largest in the club. Painted black walls with a long bar and several stools. There's a ledge on the back wall for drinks to sit. A few little tables with lit candles. At the end of the bar, the jukebox. Ten cents a song. That's the main attraction. Good music and good dancing. And finally, not in a hidden back room. The ceilings are low, and the spotlights hanging over the floor are dim. Black lights line the dance floor. Smoky air fills the poorly ventilated space, leaving the scent of perfume hanging. And there are the go-go boys on platforms at each end of the bar every weekend, wearing their gold bikini underwear. Once you're in, the bartenders start hassling for drink sales, one dollar each, steep. The booze is stolen or bootlegged, and never brand name, even if the label says so. Every drink is watered down, Though there is no running water behind the bar, it's one sink and a rubber tub where the Mafia's bartenders dunk each dirty glass to rinse and reuse it. No wonder the stone wall caused a hepatitis outbreak. Staff occasionally dumps the rubber tub in the men's room toilet, causing the plumbing to back up and overflow. A men's room attendant works in there, an older man named John. It's John's job to make sure the boys in the bathroom aren't doing anything illegal. The women's room just has a red light. Customers pass through these bathrooms, or through another doorway on the dance floor with swinging doors, in order to get to the back room. It's a step up onto the back room's dance floor. Even dimmer in here. Some tables and candles, an old wishing well made of stone and cement is near the doorway. The well has a little roof and a couple little benches. It was once a beautiful feature in wedding photos when the stone wall was a restaurant in the 1930s. Now the well is full of ice bags, beer, and boxes. The dancing on the backroom's flagstone floor is typically more sexually charged. The music in here is more soul. 
Lots of waiters push the drinks hard as Diana Ross blasts over the Beach Boys playing in the front room. A younger crowd dances back here, many more people of color and street queens. Throughout the Stonewall clientele, there are femme gays, lesbians, street queens, drag queens, gender nonconforming and trans queers, leather gays, white people, people of color, young people, poor people, but most of all, people who look too queer to get in anywhere else. Tiffany, Desiree, Spinola Jerry, and Tammy Novak spend their time here. There are the flame queens, the super femme and eye makeup and teased hair. Boys wear pedal pushers and show their midriff. There are always many wigs worn at the Stonewall Inn. Even teens who aren't old enough to drink can get in. The mafia isn't very picky about what queers they take money from. Young gays who are homeless panhandle to get their cover money to spend their evening safely inside the Stonewall. There's a true sense of freedom in here. It's not like the ice cream shop or Julius where cops can just walk in. Here, anyone can ask anyone to dance and they can really let loose. You can cruise and camp and find your family. A line like that gets picked up and spread throughout the club to become a mainstay, everyone shouting at any time Dion plays. Queens from the back room go out to the front room and stand under the pin spotlights and vogue for the girls. Across the room, in the corner, the skull is watching. His staff quietly deals drugs to the clientele from discreet cigar boxes, many capsules. If pills or money goes missing from these boxes, the mafia breaks the arm or leg of their bar employee. During a normal shift, the bouncers go around carrying a baseball bat as they collect cash from the bartenders and waiters, which is all hidden from police in more cigar boxes. They had registers at the Stonewall, but they were seized by cops in a routine raid to prove the bar was serving illegal booze. Since they're technically a bottle club anyway, they're not supposed to have registers. On a Friday or Saturday, the mob fills their cigar boxes with five to $6,000. The bar's monthly rent, $300. In fact, the skull, Ed Murphy, made back his initial investment on the club, plus a profit, on the first night the Stonewall opened. It's been pure profit for two years. Craig Rodwell dances on the main floor, watching bartenders dunk the dirty glasses, watching the bouncers rubber band the cash as he sips an overpriced watered-down beer in a dirty glass. Craig is furious and decides to write about it relentlessly in his new bookstore's gay publication, Hymnal. Craig writes... Some of the queenie boppers on Greenwich Avenue at the Stonewall have been approached to be heroin delivery boys. The latter reports, Since the SLA refuses to issue licenses to gay bars, these bars are generally run under unsanitary conditions. Some people call the Stonewall the cesspool. The mafia runs this dump and takes huge profits off of gay people, charging them prices heteros don't have to pay anywhere and they get to hang in far nicer spaces. 
the Stonewall Inn doesn't even have rear doors or fire exits. The recently released second volume of the New York City Gay Scene Guide contains a long list of gay bars, just like Hal Call's gay bar lists that were numbered and people had to sign for. This new list is much longer and tells gay tourists and locals alike where they can grab a drink. Only one bar has an exceptionally long note. The Stone Wall, 53 West Christopher Street, near Sheridan Square, it continues operating amid persistent rumors of closing, caters to a younger crowd who seem to spend all their time perfecting their dancing. Observers note that go-go boys installed on platforms have failed to attract dwindling crowds. The following news item was reported in the March 1968 Mattachine New York newsletter and is presented here in condensed form. The Mattachine Society, Inc. of New York was instrumental in aiding D.A. Frank Hogan's office with information that led to the arrest of a number of blackmailers. Edward F.P. Murphy, an ex-convict who is alleged to have been the head of the National Ring, which recently was active in extorting money from homosexuals. Murphy has served prison terms for larceny and for carrying deadly weapons and was arrested for impersonating an officer and for extortion at the New York Hilton Hotel, where he was working as a house detective. Murphy was under federal indictment on extortion charges and was permitted to plead guilty and received a five-year probation on a number of indictments in that state courts. Murphy pleaded guilty on May 16, 1966. Sentencing has been postponed six times. MSNY has also been informed that Murphy has an interest in the Stone Wall, a club on Christopher Street, and several other gay clubs in New York. We caution our readers never to use your real name when cruising, never to give your address to a questionable bar or club, and remember, that trick or hustler you've just picked up may be working for the management. We urge you, if you've been intimidated or blackmailed in the past, to report it to the DA's office or to MSNY. The Homosexual Handbook, a similar guidebook, the one that lists Hoover as a gay celebrity, it goes on to say that the person at the door of the stone wall keeps boxes that hold, or are rumored to hold, thousands of cards upon which are printed the particulars of the many thousands of customers. It seems some customers do believe that they are being screened at the door to protect the clientele from police, but the bartenders and waiters are also hired by the mob and are ordered to extort the customers. Waiters get friendly with the customers who appear to have money, which is quite similar to the Skull's national extortion ring strategy. Now his employees are in a position to research their mark right here in the bar. They particularly enjoy targeting the stock market guys. The Stonewall's new bartender, Tree, used to work as a page boy on the New York Stock Exchange, and he knows that place is full of wealthy gays. Their third-floor men's room at the Stock Exchange is notorious as one of the most active tea rooms in town. Tree and the waiters spot stock market gays constantly in the stone wall. With all this money coming in, it's easy to pay off the 6th precinct of the New York Police Department. Once a week, an officer on his beat swings by for an envelope of cash. Then, a captain or a desk sergeant will stop by for a second envelope. 
It's hundreds, if not more, every week. Sometimes the officer might even sit and have a drink on the house. But the raids will still sometimes come, no matter if there's payoff. Election season always brings them. Before a raid comes, though, the cops who take the graft will warn the bar owners in advance. Then the staff can make sure there's less money in the building when the raid hits, and less liquor to confiscate. The mafia bosses can all disappear for the night. The bribed cops will even try to time the raids to hit during a slower business time, probably before midnight on a Tuesday. Sometimes staff members get arrested, but they're not worried about it. A few hours later, the Stonewall's lawyer, a family lawyer named Enid Gerling, will have them all back out. Despite paying off the cops well, the raids have to happen from time to time if the mayor orders them. The 1969 mayoral race between incumbent Mayor Lindsay and two conservative opponents requires such a display of street cleaning. I guessed wrong on the weather before the city's biggest snowfall last winter, and that was a mistake. But I put 6,000 more cops on the streets, and that was no mistake. The school strike went on too long, and we all made some mistakes. But I brought 225,000 new jobs to this town, and that was no mistake. And I fought for three years to put a fourth police platoon on the streets, and that was no mistake. And I reduced the deadliest gas in the air by 50%. And I forced the landlords to roll back unfair rents. And we did not have a Detroit, a Watts, or a Newark in this city. And those were no mistakes. The things that go wrong are what make this the second toughest job in America. But the things that go right are what make me want it. Make your choice on merit only. Support John Lindsay for mayor. In June 1969, the Mattachine Society of New York newsletter reports three more gay men robbed and killed on Manhattan's east side. The parks are full of cops, and the Hilton Hotel is, as Mattachine writes, hot with private dicks. Near the end of the month, the public park and popular cruising ground Kew Gardens in Queens is taken by vigilantes with walkie-talkies and flashlights looking for homosexuals. The gay men stand their ground, saying they have a right to cruise in this park. The next night, the night after Lindsay loses the primary race, the vigilantes return to Kew Gardens with axes and saws and begin cutting down all the trees. Someone confronts one of these guys and he swings his axe at them. He wants all the trees and bushes taken down so that gay men can't cruise here. The person he attacked goes to the police to report the violence, but the cops don't stop the vigilantes. The cops actually go talk to the axe-wielding homophobes and let them carry on cutting down the trees. Over these few weeks in June, five gay bars are raided. Three of them are shut down for good. In the press, the Village Voice and the New York Times both refuse to print ads for the homosexual handbook even though it's sold out its second printing of 50,000 books. Meanwhile, the Medical World News publishes an article supporting conversion therapy. 
Dr. Silkarides and others voice a growing optimism that sexual redirections is possible for many homosexuals. Leaders in the field report that from one-third to one-half of their patients are successfully converting to heterosexuality. Some therapists are treating with psychoanalysis. Some are using group therapy, alone or with individual psychotherapy. Some are using hypnosis. Others are using conditioning, aversion therapy, with electroshock or nauseating drugs and photographs of nude men. Twelve troublesome homosexual inmates at New Jersey State Hospital who were so overtly aggressive that they were placed in the maximum security building, were given 50 milligrams to 200 milligrams of the drug thioridazine three times daily. Within a week, attendants and nurses were commenting on the improvement. Gentlemen, Your article illustrates how far medicine and its related disciplines of psychiatry and psychoanalysis have yet to go before they move out of the realm of spells, incantations, and witchcraft, cease being pseudo-religious, and become the sciences that they should be. You refer to aversion therapy. So intent are you people upon your monomania of conversion to heterosexuality that you do not perceive the utter barbarism of these methods. They are horrifying. Descriptions of aversion therapy remind one of a page out of a tome on medieval torture, a discussion of the techniques of the Spanish Inquisition, or a text on modern Russian brainwashing. While preparing for the fifth annual reminder picket next month, Dick Leisch writes to Barbara Giddings again, June 24th, 1969. We cannot support a demonstration that pretends to reflect the feelings of all homosexuals while excluding many homosexuals from participating in the demonstration. Since our membership covers all the spectrum of gay life, we encompass drag queens, leather queens, and many, many groovy men and women whose wardrobe consists of bell-bottoms, vests, and miles of guilt chains. Rather than risk the embarrassment and insult of having some of our people rejected, as did happen a few years ago, we choose neither to participate nor support the demonstration and to make our reasons plain in our publication. The annual reminder held out such promise at its inception, and I am sorry to see it become the personal property of a few who would set themselves up as an establishment, no less bigoted and exclusionary than the real establishment we're supposedly fighting. Many homophiles are contesting the dress code for the fifth annual reminder. It seems like the MSNY is dropping out, And Dick seems to be blaming Frank. Barbara forwards the letter along to him. When the moment is right, he'll tell Dick Leish how he feels. On to the next letter. Frank writes back to a friend in the summer of 69. We have long ago become resigned to the fact that wealthy, professionally established, prominent homosexuals, for example, will give us no support whatsoever. 
and returning another letter, this one to a weary activist. Don't get discouraged at slow progress. I learned long ago that things move with excruciating slowness. When I founded the Mattachine Society of Washington seven and a half years ago, I felt sure that now we had an organization. All we had to do was approach the government, and the walls of Jericho would come tumbling down at once. It's almost a decade later, and they're still standing, if somewhat weakened. Cordially, Frank. A decade ago, mid-season two, the New York Mattachine president at the time went on TV for an interview while wearing a mask. The daughters of Belitis were loading their files into a station wagon just before the SFPD showed up at their office to ask questions. Homophiles had no influence on the federal government a decade ago. Now, in 1969, the activists have picketed to the point of exhaustion. They're discussing feminism and black power as part of the movement. The CSC is budging, and Hoover talks about Mattachine in the press. And homophiles are continually calling out police brutality in their publications under their own legal names. They're shaking the walls. And now, a group of gay people who are even more blatant than homophiles are being discussed in the New York Times because their cast recording of Boys in the Band is being released. The whole play on vinyl. That's how popular it is. Soon, young gays like Albert Williams will camp around in their college dorms playing the record, memorizing every gay little quip. Albert Williams voices Frank Kameny on this podcast. The New York Times explains, self-hate is no longer the style of homosexuals. Now, they're not just angry, they're proud of what they are. <laughs> Christ, I was so drunk I don't remember. Oh, bullshit, you remember. <laughs> just friends, lovers, no more. You might as well be, everyone thinks you are anyway. Uh, well, cool it for the few minutes he's here. Okay. Anything for a sis, Mary? Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about, Emery. No camping. Sorry. You think the Giants are going to win the pennant this year? Oh, fucking A, man. <laughs> hey, Bernard! Ah, it's only another queen! And it ain't the red one. Look, everybody, there's some crack crab there. Just help yourself. Well, well, is everybody right. ready for a drink? Ready. I'll be your topless cocktail waitress. Please, bear us the sight of your sagging tits. Yes, The captain of Brooklyn's 10th Division, Seymour Pine, is called into the office of Chief Inspector Sanford Garlick, who led that village meeting in the church right before the sip-in. Garlick is impressed by how Captain Seymour Pine handled a tricky race riot on Coney Island. He offered Pine a promotion, which Pine initially turned down so that he could run a volunteer program to help brain-injured children learn how to crawl. But in 1967, Garlick forced the promotion on Pine. Pine has to move into public morals. It's probably the perfect job for him, though. Pine has a good reputation. 
He takes on mob leaders and does his best to keep his officers out of corrupt behavior. That's why he's transferred. Gerlich can't seem to clean up Manhattan's 1st Division Morals Office on the inside. All the cops are taking graft. 1st Division is everything from 35th down to Battery Park. Lots of gay bars and other vice issues. Pine will also be required to meet with members of the Mattachine Society. On the new job, Detective Charles Smith calls Deputy Inspector Pine into his office to discuss their shared responsibility of the 1st Division's public morals officers. Smith and Pine served together in World War II. They know each other well, which will be helpful in their new assignment. Their commanding officer tells them that there have been financial irregularities in Europe connected to New York City. Interpol has discovered a huge cache of negotiable bonds, vanished from the United States, and were put up for sale in Europe. While working the Skulls, Chickens, and the Bulls case, the NYPD discovered collusion between the Mafia and employees of a federal depository, who happened to be frequent guests of a Mafia bar called the Stonewall. Perhaps these federal depository employees have been blackmailed by the Mafia with their gay secret just like the National Extortion Ring. The commanding officer explains to detectives Pine and Smith that this activity seems to be coming from a certain set of gay clubs in Manhattan's 1st Division. He says there have been reports of several big cars stopping outside the Stonewall, dropping off people who appear to be wealthy. What would they be doing there? Deputy Inspector Pine is ordered to shut down these clubs, especially the Stonewall Inn. Tuesday, June 24th, Pine raids the Stonewall, routinely arresting the bar staff and confiscating all the bar's liquor. The staff will be bailed out by the lawyer, and new liquor is already on the way. As Pine is heading out the door of the Stonewall, One of the owners says, If you want to make a bust, that's your business. We'll be open again tomorrow. Of course, Inspector Pine knows that's true, so he accepts the challenge. He'll plan a surprise bust that shuts the stone wall down for good. On Friday, Jack and Lige head out for a fun weekend on Fire Island. Martha Shelley meets up with two women from Boston who want to start a DOB chapter. She's going to give them a tour of the lesbian bars in the village. Dick Leish listens to the radio while he packs his suitcase for a trip to Europe with his lover. Sylvia Rivera is getting back home to New York City from a trip to D.C. with her lover. She's wearing a women's suit she made herself. Lots of makeup and hair. She looks good, and she wants to go out. Let's go to Stonewall. Next week, on episode 11, The Devil with the Blue Dress On. Thanks for listening. How exciting. I can't believe it. If you're enjoying my little radio drama, please give her a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or a review to help the podcast reach more listeners. It is incredibly helpful. Thank you so much, everybody. 
You can also follow the show at Queer Serial on Instagram to see the real events and people from every episode, including this week some of the Village Street Queens and Randy's Buttons, and, of course, the Stonewall Inn. Thanks to everyone who has donated to support production of the podcast and upcoming projects on their way. If you want to support the show, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash queercereal for lots of bonus content. Or you can head over to queercereal.com slash donate. Also, thanks to the One Archives, the GLBT Historical Society, and the Gerber Hart Library and Archives. Check out queercereal.com for more resources. The Sylvia Rivera audio is used courtesy of Making Gay History. Find the Making Gay History podcast on all major podcast platforms and at makinggayhistory.com. It's fabulous. Teachers, feel free to DM me on any social media or email me at queercereal at gmail.com if you would like transcripts of the episodes. Voice actors, again, huge thanks to all of you who recorded during the pandemic over Zoom, on your phones, or six feet from me in a large room. You're all so wonderful. I'm so grateful to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Former Vector Magazine editor Leo Lawrence was played by returning special guest Sam Pancake. Sam played the mischievous gay lawyer Kenneth Zwerin last season, and you can also see him play Dick Leish of the New York Mattachine on the HBO series Equal. He's gorgeous and a fabulous actor. Frank Kameny was played by Albert Williams. But D.O.B. is for lesbians, not women. Lesbian. <laughs> That's such a great line. <laughs> this is very interesting. Isn't it? Nothing succeeds like success. And thus far, I have the successes. And you do not. Randy Wicker by Eddie Miller. Jean Damon by Amanda Victorian. Daughter by Anne-Marie Friedo. Ada Bello by Olgi Fryer. Del Martin by Salvio Gatto. The Berkeley Barb Reporter was played by me, but was originally played by my friend Maggie Smith, but we had some sound issues. Little John and other Sir officials met... <laughs> Sorry, I said Little John really funny. <laughs> Little John. <laughs> Little John and other sir. <laughs> Little John. Little John. <laughs> Little John. <laughs> Larry Little John. Little John and other sir. <laughs> Larry Little John. Morgan Penny was played by Marissa Barbara Clayton, Larry Littlejohn by Coquette's director David Weissman, Steve Matthews by my darling Julian Hall, Jim Connolly by fellow Fraser Craniac Dan Unser, Queen's Quarterly by the beautiful Jack Murphy, Dick Leish, and the hetero bully by Evan Kepnick. Look at that. He's touching that tit and doesn't get nothing out of it. The fabulous Stonewall singing queer by... A beautiful light of pure love, Cody Kazubowski. Okay, yo, set, okay. Trains and dice and queers and planes and facts and gays. Take two. <laughs> Julius Patron by gay historian Owen Keenan. Check out my website, look up his books. Danny Garvin by Gage Kyle. Barbara Giddings by Clarissa Janelle. And for The Skull and the Medical World Reporter covering conversion therapy, those were John Roth in his weekly appearance on Queer Serial. The fabulous podcast art is by Ryan Teal. Some of the music you'll hear this season is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0, but most of the music you'll hear this season is from Blue Dot Sessions. The original Mattachine Society gesture logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I'm Devlin Camp. 
back next week with a very exciting episode. Bye. And thus far, I have the successes, and you do not. It may not be today. I was just thinking that. (laughs) (laughs) No more beans in our community.